The sermon is taken from Acts 9. This is the last of these series on Satan attacking his church, God's church. I'm going to begin a series next week on grieving, grief. And we're going to be looking at the life of David, the Old Testament from 1 Samuel, and mostly 1 Samuel, a little bit into 2 Samuel. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you said, who really had, if I asked you, who had probably the most difficult, painful life of anybody in the Bible, you would probably say Job, right? And I think I could make a really strong argument for David. And you wait until we finish the series. We're only, I had 17 messages planned, but that's way too much grief for any church to stand. I shortened it to six or seven messages, but I mean, this guy went through it and it was from nearly the beginning uh, after he was anointed to be king as a boy from about that time, from after Goliath, all the way to the day of his death, he had suffering and grief. And there's so much we can learn from it. And uh, I think it'll be helpful. I, I hope you don't go through grief, but inevitably you will. And uh, I think there'll be things we can learn, whether we're suffering grief or not, that we can learn how to grieve appropriately and beneficially. Acts 9, beginning in verse 23, after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill Saul. And laying wait, their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates and night, a day and night, to kill him. And when the disciples took uh, him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he joined himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then, had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help, because as easy as, as this is to understand, it's a lot more difficult to apply. So we need your help in making application of this to our lives. There's so much material here, so much I want to say. Help me to keep my thoughts focused. Help me to say only what the Spirit wants me to say. And help us all to hear and learn what you want us to know. That we might be different people because of it. Lord, we all go through times of spiritual attack. Help us not to waste those times. Help that not to be useless pain but rather may we grow in our own faith to walk in the fear of God, to walk in the comfort 
the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we are edified, built up in our faith, and that our church is multiplied in this community. It's, it seems counter to the way we think, but it's often in these difficult times that you're doing your work in us. So we ask you, Lord, please today to take this message, take this text, and help us to understand it and grow thereby. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old political principle. Don't waste a crisis. Of course, that's referring to the ability to push through your various legislative goals during a time when people are more focused on the major problem at hand. But in spiritual terms, a crisis is one of the most important times in a believer's life. Because a crisis is when you are exposed. The real you comes to the surface. Your faith is tested. A crisis is an opportunity to demonstrate that you really do believe in God, that you trust in His Word, and that you give testimony to that fact by your obedience, even when you are hurting. Think about Mark and Jennifer. Their four-year-old fell and hit his head on the hard leg of a chair. They rushed him to the emergency room when he started acting strangely. And even though the doctor believes that surgery will correct the problem, there are a bunch of unknowns that remain. Holding hands in the waiting room, they feel alone and afraid. Is God going to take away their little buddy? Now that's a crisis. And while the story is fictional, it rings true to our ears because we know of situations just like these. I mean, can you imagine what was going through Mark Burhan's mind when he found out that his wife was dying? We, we've been through crises like these. What should we do in difficult times? I can tell you what we often want to do. We want everything just to get better. We have our prayer meetings, and in crisis, we shoot up our hands. We ask for requests, please pray for me. And then we put it in terms that maybe sound pretty spiritual, but in reality, what we're actually asking is, please pray that God will make things better. That he'll just make it all go away. He has the ability to do that, after all. It would be nothing to God to fix every problem each of us have and to let us live all of our days to the very last moments of life, to breathe our last in relative comfort, the sun shining on our face, while our cat or dog or loved one circles our head with love and joy, right? God could do that. I'll tell you that Mark and Jennifer's four-year-old son recovers from his injury. If I say that, then you all breathe a quick sigh of relief and we move on. Nothing to see here, right? But if I tell you that maybe he doesn't die, but he never really recovers, 
something as simple as a little fall in the dining room. Maybe you don't think too much about it, at least after some time of grieving with the young couple. It's not your crisis. So you move on, and so do Mark and Jennifer and their son. They move on to years of difficulty and heartache. I met a youth pastor in Chicago many years ago. We became friends. I have no idea why he has a very strange sense of humor. I I have an unusual sense of humor, but he has a weird sense of humor. And he calls me George or, yeah, something like that. Every time I see him, and it's not often enough anymore. I used to see him all the time. This guy and I became really good friends. Uh, In fact, he and I went to a Chicago White Sox game with two other friends, and he ate so much food at the all-you-can-eat buffet that he ended up laying down on the floor in the bathroom at the Chicago White Sox Stadium. That is not a clean place. (laughs) But he was feeling so sick, he was just laying on the floor. Well, it was after knowing him for maybe a year that I found out that he and his wife had a son. I I had met his children. No, they had an older son. They didn't really talk about him very much because he was completely and totally disabled. He lived at home. He lived in their living room. He was hooked up to monitors and and tubes 24 hours a day for most of his life. And he lived some 20 years or more. In fact, I think he only died a couple of years ago. And from the day he was born, from the day they brought him home from the hospital, he couldn't speak to them. He could only show some limited ability to say, I understand what's going on around me. He was very disabled. But they faithfully cared and loved that boy. And I think about all the young ladies who hope to have a son, but not that son. All the men who want a boy to raise up, but not that boy. I think of people in churches where that kind of thing happens. It kind of goes on unspoken that someone's going through a trial like that. Let's turn the story on its head for a moment. You live in a small town. This isn't Mark and Jennifer anymore. This is you. You decide to leave the best place on earth, right here, to go to a small town. I don't know why you did it. You were out of your mind, but you did. You moved away to a small town. And you work there, and you're raising your family with your spouse, and things seem well. You're part of a good local church, and life is just what it should be for somebody your age. You love the Lord, your spouse, your children, And most of the people at your church, even those. But then one day, a madman who occupies a position of power in the country next to yours decides to invade your nation with the hopes of stripping it of its democratic system of government and installing himself as a sort of quasi-dictator. Can you imagine anything like that happening? This is a nation where there's no real freedom of religion, not real freedom. There is some, but it's limited. And as as his troops surround your small town, you and your family try to get away to safety. Actually, your wife and children are able to flee as refugees. They have very little money, very little plans for survival. They just hope others will help them. You stay behind 
either to fight or maybe encourage those who do just to help out. They're running for their lives. And you're just hoping they can get away. Oh, and the home you have, it was destroyed by a missile. So what do you do in that kind of difficulty? And of course, that illustration is not physical. That illustration is not fictional at all. Many Christians living in Ukraine are wondering where they're going to get their next meal today. Their children, hopefully, have been able to get to Poland or another friendly state, but you're left behind. Your life's in danger. And what will you do? And in some ways, this is the kind of situations that Christians in the early church faced. They, they faced down multiple attacks from their adversary, the devil, whose growls they could hear day and night reverberating through the highways and byways of their town. He was seeking to destroy the believers there. And at this time, just like the Marks and the Jennifers of our world, we can identify with people personally, even with our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, we can identify that when Satan attacks, when he attacks, And this is the point I'm trying to get to. When he attacks, it's an opportunity to grow spiritually. Don't waste it. Don't let it just go by. That's wasted pain. That's useless pain. So I want to help you. See the importance of never wasting a crisis by showing you first that Satan uses His people to hinder God's work. Here's the Apostle Paul. Saul, really. Saul is doing God's work in Damascus. It says in verse 23, after many days were fulfilled. And if I asked you how long that was, you'd probably say a week or two. And certainly it seems that way from Luke's expression. But but in reality, this was Paul, this was Saul's, First, full-time ministry in Damascus. And while after many days doesn't seem like a long time, in Galatians 1 we actually learn that this is approximately three years of time. He spends about three years in Damascus. And, and in fact, the events in verse 22, if you go back there, that, he, that Saul increased the more in spiritual strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ, All of this is going on during about three years. Saul's getting stronger. His preaching is confounding the Jews in Damascus. And he's able to prove from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. This is all going on. And because of that, Satan comes along and he plans with his people, these Jewish people who hated Christianity, to murder Saul. You see at the end of verse 23, The Jews took counsel to kill him. Apparently, the Jewish attitude was, if we can't win the debate with Saul, we might as well murder him. And Luke indicates that they got together. The plan was actually quite intricate. If you go from here to 2 Corinthians and Galatians 1, there are places where Paul actually refers to this period of time in his life. And it's interesting because in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul refers to the secular governor of the area, of the region, actually working with the Jews to take his life. So it wasn't just a plot among the Jews. It was actually a 
a political plot. The people who lived there who were not Christians wanted him dead. They all did. And I asked myself, what kind of crisis is Saul facing? Sure, there's a murder plot where the Jews have conspired together to kill him. That's a big crisis. And then I think, I've never faced any kind of crisis like that. As far as I know, none of the small groups of our church have spent their Wednesday evening thinking, how can we take out the pastor? <laughs> right? <laughs> and all that laughter makes me a little nervous here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not been a, a topic of conversation. We haven't faced anything like that ourselves. Even some of you who've been in the public square, the public sector a little more, have probably never faced something like that. Our crises are usually medical problems, some kind of physical trauma, maybe an accident, temptation, family crisis, family problems, problems with children, financial concerns. Those are, those are the usual things that we face, at least as 21st century American Christians. And while not every one of those comes directly from Satan's hand, I think it's helpful to kind of recognize that he is often involved in the things that are against us. Satan has friends who want to hinder God's work. I think as a church we face spiritual issues. From time to time we struggle with people problems. Anytime you get people together, enough of them, you're going to find that they don't always agree. Division occurs. Then you can have, even as you have a testimony in the community, the community can reject your testimony. You can even have competitive believers. I went to a conference years ago. pastor from another church was there. And even though I'm on the board of the organization throwing the conference and was one of the speakers at the conference, they put my name and then my friend's church name underneath. And I, I looked at it and I kind of chuckled. And I said, uh, so that's not the church I'm pastoring. That's this guy's church. I don't, I don't, I'm not in his church. Well, he thought it was funny. And he said to me, I guess if you can't beat him, you join him. Ha ha ha. It's okay. It's kind of cute. But the thing is, I, I know he kind of means that. Do, do you know... In North Carolina, we put the I in independent Baptist church. We really do. Years ago, I had a pastor friend who hosted a ladies' Bible study, a Saturday seminar for ladies. And it was once a year. And it would rotate between three churches. Well, we planted our church. and We were meeting over on Cary Parkway at the time. And so at a meeting, I said, hey, you know, it'd be really great if we could host one year. That was the last year we ever had the ladies seminar in our area. He told me later, I was afraid the ladies would come to your church and want to go to your church instead of my church. Come on. I'm looking, you, you've got a building. I, I meet in a dance hall. Well, it wasn't then, but it is now. It's ballet, but it's still dancing, right? 
Competitive believers. And oftentimes Satan is at work and he works through people because he really does want to harm you. But, but, God also uses people. This is point number two. God also uses people to further his own designs. And in this way, you can find yourself in the middle of a solution to a problem. You see, God can use you to protect other believers. Look at verse 24. What they're laying in wait was known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Saul's disciples helped him escape. Now, it says here in verse 25, the disciples, but you should read that as his disciples. That's how the language reads in the text. His disciples. Saul was a disciple maker. For three years, after being converted, he began making disciples. This is what God had called him to do. And so while the English doesn't say that clearly, the text is saying that. These are Saul's disciples, and his own disciples are helping him escape from the city, escape from the plot against him. Look at verse 30. When the brothers knew, the brethren, this now is in Jerusalem, when they knew about the plot from verse 29 to take out Saul's life, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. So just like the disciples in, the Dam in Damascus, now you have the brothers in Jerusalem. They're helping Saul flee from the plot to murder him in Jerusalem. And I think the application here is pretty simple. One of the things that God does in the middle of a crisis is he puts other believers into your life to help solve the problem. And you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you can be the solution to someone else's crisis. You could be their answer to prayer when they're going through physical trauma. Even something as simple as breaking your ankle because you are standing on a cedar chest you shouldn't be standing on. I don't know if you all heard about that. But a church lady here made us, made us a meal. And my wife said, I can still stand up. I can make food. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to cook for the next three weeks. I can do this. I was all geeked up to do this. But a lady in the church said, can I make you a meal? And then she made enough for the entire church family to eat and brought it over. And it was, it was like on a flatbed truck. I'm not kidding. They, they kept bringing in. She and her husband kept bringing in stuff. And I kept thinking, wow, it's a lot of food. But we did. We ate all of it over the course of about a week. And you know what? I was so thankful. And I, I, did, I hesitate to ask anybody to make me anything. But I was so thankful that this couple said, can we help you? And some of you have done that for each other. You become the solution to their crisis. You can become the solution to the crisis of someone's testimony. They're in a situation that could really hurt their testimony, and then you just kind of jump in. And sometimes that means by not sharing what you know with other people, just keeping your mouth shut. Sometimes that means actually stopping them from doing something they shouldn't be doing. 
You can help other people financially. I remember walking by, and we didn't ever have a lot of money. When I was growing up, we looked like we did. But it was all a facade. And I remember my dad, I was on the phone with a man in our church saying, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. I found out later that we paid the light bill because the power had gone off at this church family's house. He was a contractor. His, his, uh, he was a subcontractor. The contractors were not paying him. And even though he was owed a lot of money, he didn't have any money. And so my dad came along and paid his power bill. You're solving a problem. You can do that for people spiritually. You can pray for each other. You can care for each other spiritually by actually coming in and speaking a word, right? Helping each other follow Christ to the glory of God. Not only can you help protect other believers, God can use you to promote the work of other Christians. Look at verse 26. When Saul did go down to Jerusalem, finally he was assayed to join himself. He wanted to get up with the other disciples. But they're all afraid of him. They haven't gotten the memo, right? And it's been three years, but Damascus is some 150 miles away. And back then, news travels much slower than it does today. It wasn't on CNN. They didn't have access to email. And so they're, they're thinking, he's not a disciple. We remember when he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter and dragging off Christians in Jerusalem to jail. I think some of the disciples in Jerusalem, some of the believers there, were actually missing mom because of Saul. Or they were missing dad because of Saul. Would you want to invite him into your home for your small group fellowship? You think? They're nervous, right? So notice, not everyone is eager to embrace Saul. He's one of the main persecutors, and I think there's natural skepticism here. That's fine. But notice, along comes who? Do you see it? But Barnabas. Barnabas comes along, took him and brought him to the apostles, declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way. He, he gives them Saul's own testimony, which tells me Saul had said it over and over again in Damascus. He takes Saul to the apostles. He vouches for Saul's testimony, and he gives witness of Saul's preaching to the believers in Damascus. He talks about the disciples that Saul has made in Damascus. And, and I think, just like Barnabas, God can use you to help in the work of other Christians through prayer, through material support, through encouragement, even by going to help them yourself. I'm reminded, I believe it was Hudson Taylor who had come back, gone back to England. He'd gone there to kind of raise awareness of what was going on in his ministry out east, in the far east. And everywhere he went, everybody wanted to give him money. And it bothered him because that's not what he really wanted. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to sound kind of cynical. I know when missionaries come here to present to the ministry that they need money. We all know that, right? And let's, let's, let's not be naive. They're not calling me up saying, can I come to your church because I really want people to move with me to Jamaica 
I think that'd be a great way to do church planting, by the way. But that's, I've never had anybody say that to me. And even when I broached that as a possibility, as a means to church plant, I've been shot down over and over again as that being even a viable means. Because, you know, you call the pastor, could, would you send some of your deacons to help me church plant, I don't know, maybe for 10 years? Not many pastors are willing to take that phone call. So Hudson Taylor, he didn't like that they wanted to give him money. He didn't want money. I don't need your money. I need you. I need you to move, to come and help the ministry. I've got lots of jobs. And we're training these people, but I need you. I need your prayer. I need your support. I need you, your body, your, your ability to do this. And, and I don't want to be cynical, but I think it would be something if we had a guy come by sometime and present his ministry to a place like Cape Verde or a, or a place in Africa or Japan, if somebody just came through and you said, after hearing the presentation, I think I'm going to go and move to be with them. I just do whatever I can. I'll find a secular job in that country and I'll work and I'll, I'll be a member of that church to help however I can. That would be something. You can be like Barnabas. You can provide encouragement. Do you know the one thing that Christians do to each other? We shoot our wounded. That's what we do. We line them up against the wall and we shoot them. We talk about them behind their backs. We say negative things about them to each other. And I've been sometimes guilty of that, I confess. But you can provide encouragement. You can come along beside them and, and build them up. Try to, try to help them keep following after Christ. Letter C, God can even use you to directly confront those who deny the gospel. I'm not just talking now about God helping you promote the work of other Christians or, or God using you to protect other believers. Now God is using you to do the work itself. Verses 28 and 29. And, and he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. Now he's part of the group who, who are leading the church in Jerusalem. And he, he was speaking boldly, verse 29, in the name of the Lord Jesus even against these Jewish Grecians, they're the Hellenized Jews, they're not converts to Christianity. They went about to slay him. Saul apparently continued his disciple-making ministry in Jerusalem. And he spoke in the name of Jesus. And I loved it. It was bold speech. And it was controversial speech. But it was, was it controversial just to be controversial. And you know what? It wasn't political. And he didn't have a Facebook account where he started just spreading all sorts of political news. Saul was singularly focused on promoting the gospel of Christ. And I think it's neat because God can use believers to do this. I think God wants more Sauls to stand up for him. You could be a Saul at your job. You can be a Saul. You can be a Saul in your school. Even if you're only 14 or 16 years old or whatever age you are in your school, you can be like Saul in your community with your neighbors, even in your own family. You can stand up for God. 
confronting those who deny the gospel of Jesus. Well, what started as Satan's plan to harm God's servants turns by God's own hand into something really special because the result is that there was spiritual health in these churches throughout the region. This is where Luke concludes the stories of Satan's attacks. It's not that Satan's not going to continue attacking, but the systematic story upon story of Satan attacking the churches ends here. If you read the gospel of the Gospel of Acts, if you read Acts, as you're reading through it, you're going to find these summary statements. They kind of end at the end of these stories. And then the church was multiplied, and, and then the believers were quieted or had rest. You find it after the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The people were afraid in fear of God, and the church was multiplied. You find these summary statements, and now finally we get a summary statement. And I think here's what you have. It's almost like my first two points are one grand point. Okay, Satan is working to harm Christianity, while God is using all of this going on for his own design. And what is his design? It kind of Now we land on that third idea. Because what we find is this. Obedient Christians, obedient disciples, produce a healthy church. And we kind of turn from the first two ideas, which is Satan's doing his thing and God is doing his thing. All of these things are happening. But in the middle of all of that, it's the obedient people, the believers who follow after God and follow after Christ. God is working through them to produce not a spiritually safe church, not a physically healthy church, not a financially sound church, not a church that has a beautiful facility with an orange glowing thing behind the speaker. Have you seen those on YouTube? These churches that have the orange and blue glow going on. Whatever, we have stone now, so... <laughs> Take that, all you orange glowing churches. I mean, whatever, those are fine, I guess. No, you know what God does? He takes obedient believers. You, 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 me. To produce a spiritually healthy church. That, that's where this lands. As Satan is using his people to attack us, when we respond in God's will, in the middle of that, we find that a spiritually healthy church is the result. The Christians were obedient to the Lord's commands. The churches had rest, verse 31, through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Why do you say those places? Does, does it ring a bell for you? Can you go back to the first chapter? What did Jesus say right before he leaves? You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, the rest of the earth. What's happening here is Luke is explaining the church had finally fulfilled the mission, the task that Jesus had given it to do. They were obedient. They, would, they had been obedient, but it takes time to spread like that. They didn't have cars and modern economies. So it takes time to spread like that. But, and some of it was through persecution. Some of it was through Saul himself pushing 
these believers out of Jerusalem, squeezing them out. But now, finally, the churches are being established throughout this whole area. The early church is growing and they're given rest for their labors because the enemy is quieted. Their, their final enemy, the face, is Saul, and he's now one of theirs. In fact, he got traded from the bad team to the good team, and now he's the starting quarterback on the good team, right? It's pretty cool what's going on. The enemy's quieted. Saul is no longer an enemy, but a friend. And his own work now is in another part of the world, so the Jews kind of quiet down themselves because he's now in Tarsus, not there anymore. And I think God is rewarding the faithfulness of his people to him by just giving them that rest. And, and their obedience, don't leave out this, their obedience resulted in spiritual growth. You see all of this, these weird phrases here, verbs and participles kind of all meshed together, creating an exegetical nightmare for a preacher to figure out what's modifying what. I think this is what he's saying. They were built up in their faith. That is, they were edified and multiplied. You see that they were edified and then walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. They were multiplied. So they were edified. Their spiritual, in their spiritual commitments to God, they grew. So they became stronger believers through all the circumstances that had brought them to this point. Through the, the trial of Peter and John, and, and their beating uh, by the temple guards through the attack on the church, through Ananias and Sapphira, through what was going on um, with in, the problem between the people who were Jewish Christians by, of Greek birth or Jewish Christians by Jewish birth and the, and the problem of who's getting fed and the widows. You, you've worked through all of these problems that had finally been heaped on them and now showing obedience in all of these things. They had grown strong. They had deacons serving and pastors serving. And the church grew. They wanted to please God more. And they were multiplied. And do you know who was decimated? The Pharisees. The Sadducees had re no real interest in God at all. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. You know, you die, you just are gone, I guess. The Sadduceean view of life was very sad, but the Pharisees, they, they believed the Old Testament. And church history teaches us that within a couple of decades of Jesus' resurrection, the Pharisees have been decimated by some, maybe 75% of them have become Christians. It's pretty incredible. More people became Christians through this time. The church grew in number. So they were built up in their faith. They flourished in their faith. How great would it be? How wonderful would it be if every single man here who is a husband and a father really walked in the fear of God? If you got up in the morning, men, and you said, I'm going to leave my home walking in the fear of God today, it'd change your family. This is what's happening. They're flourishing in their faith because they're ordering their lives at the beginning of wisdom, not intelligence. There are a lot of intelligent people in this world who don't even believe in God. Not in education. There are a whole lot of educated people in this world who can't tell you what a woman is. And I'm not trying to poke fun. I'm telling you that's true. 
They're very smart. They're very scientifically oriented. But they're fools. They're not wise. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How great would it be if we had husbands and wives walking in the fear of God so they're leading their homes in wisdom, having discernment. I mean, these people are really doing well spiritually, aren't they? I can't imagine all the pain and suffering they went through to get to this point, but they're doing great. And they experience the guidance of the Spirit. Do you see here the comfort? And the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Periclesis, to come beside and say the right thing at the right time. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes beside them. He's leading them. God is actually giving them step by step, line by line, how to get through life. It isn't that difficult if you follow after God. I mean, you have questions where you need God's wisdom. Do I buy this house? Do I rent this apartment? Do I buy this car? Do I try to take the bus? Do I shop at this grocery store? You start thinking through all the decisions you have to make. And as you're, as you're looking at those decisions and you're trying to take the best one, you need wisdom to do that. And you use your intellect and you use your education, but ultimately you need God's wisdom to help you make those choices correctly. And what a blessing if any of you lack wisdom, or since you all lack wisdom, ask of God, he gives liberally, change one. God leads them step by step. Do you know what life is like when you're being led by the Holy Spirit of God? It is every day as you get up and you study his word, a, a fiery pillar arises in the night and a cloud of smoke appears in the day. And every day you walk in the direction of that fire or that cloud. Every day, like the Old Testament Jews leaving Egypt, you walk every day after God's own words. They're a lamp to your feet. They're a light to your path. And so now, parents, you know how to raise your children and you don't have to ask somebody named Dr. Spock. Well, that's only for you who grew up in the 19, had children in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. You don't even have to ask James Dobson. I don't even think he's very good at it, frankly. I have some qualms, some questions for him if I ever met him. He gave me some bad, bum advice once in one of his books. Terrible advice. I took it and paid the piper for it. My child screamed all night in a hotel room in Evansville, Indiana. And I was in my heart screaming, I hate you, James Dobson. I don't hate him, but... I took his bum advice. No, I need God to be my guide. It doesn't mean I can't have other Christians help me out. We learned that earlier. But the point is, is that the Lord is the one leading me. And he will. God's will isn't difficult, friends. We make it difficult. God isn't the kind of God who says, obey me and do my will, but then hides it from you. And says, try to find it like it's trick or treat. Or like it's an Easter egg hunt. Try to find it. Hope you can. Because if you don't, bam, I'm knocking you down. That's not what God does. 
All he says in his word is follow me, follow me, follow me, obey me, follow me, trust me, have faith in me, trust me, trust me, trust me. The Psalms, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. <laughs> Psalm 119. Trust me, Aleph. Trust me, babe. Trust me. You know, just going through the alphabet of the Hebrew. These eight verses. Trust me, trust me, trust me. My word. It's good. I have more wisdom than my teachers. I had a friend who used to quote that to his teachers in school. They didn't appreciate that verse. It was never a memory verse now that I'm thinking about. But God will lead you every step of the path. So don't waste the crisis. Don't waste it. For us as a church, whatever crisis, crises we face, let's not waste it. Don't waste the last two years of your life. We've all been through many crises together. Between a pandemic and the economy, what's about to happen economically, what's going on in the world, don't waste all of this. No. Realize Satan has his people out there. They're doing everything they can to harm the church. But God has his people, and we are set up to accomplish God's purposes and designs, all of which leads to the fact that when we obey him, when we obey, he will produce in us a healthy, vibrant church. Let's pray. Father, this is what we want, and I need you to help us, Lord. We can't do this on our own. We fight our flesh and sometimes fail because we do it on our own, but now these promises are here. If we walk in the fear of the Lord and if we, if we walk in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we know that we can be edified and multiplied. So help us, Lord. Each of us, me, beginning with me, to do this, even while Satan is growling and we can hear his paws on the path and smell his scent in the way and see the carnage that he's left behind in other places. But we do not have to fear him because we know you have designs of your own and plans of your own. And you're using us to help each other follow Christ. So, Lord, please help us to be obedient disciples. Before I finish praying, how many of you here will say, Pastor, that's me? I, I haven't been an obedient disciple, but I want to be. There are some areas of my life where I know I'm not being obedient to God, but I want to be. Would you let me pray for you, brother? Thank you. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I want to be an obedient disciple. Lord, we love you. We're imperfect. I'm, I'm so imperfect. If anyone here came to this church today hoping to find a perfect church or a perfect pastor, let them down easy, I pray. Because none of that's here. But what is here, Lord, is a desire to follow after 
our Savior for the glory of God the Father. Help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. You just pray. Just focus now. People around you respond to the message. Maybe you didn't, but pray for them. That's what you can do during this time. As you please.